Well, what we're doing today is we're still in our last things, our eschatology uh, lessons, and uh, I've, I've put forward that there are a number of things that need to happen before the return of Jesus Christ. And what we're looking at today, if you look at your, at your sheet or the PDF that was mailed out, um, right above, at the very bottom, above number four, one question remains. What about Israel's future? Is Israel's rejection final? Will the beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel permanently be merely a remnant within Israel? And we're going to go back and look at all these things. But then, um, and I'm, I'm going to argue, no. And I think the text argues, no, it's actually, it's not permanent. Um, Israel's transgressions of rejecting Christ and the righteousness of God offered through him alone has led to the salvation for the Gentiles. The salvation of Gentiles has the purpose of making Israel envious. Number three, far greater blessings than the offer of a new relationship with God for the Gentiles will come when God accepts Israel once again. The return of Israel to favor with God will occur at the climax of history when the dead are raised. So, so I'm going to be going, I'm going to be exegeting a, a good chunk of Romans chapter 10, 10, 13 to 11, 15 today. That's the plan. So but I'm trying to give you the heads up. This is why we're doing this. this is why we're looking at this in the context of eschatology. Hopefully that makes some sense. So I'll start with this. Haru Onoda was a Japanese army officer who fought in the Second World War. In December of 1944, eight months before Japan was defeated by the Allies, Onoda was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines, where he was ordered to do all that he could to hamper enemy attacks, including destroying the airstrip and the pier at the harbor. Onoda's orders also stated that under no circumstances was he to surrender or to take his own life. Two months later, United States and Philippine Commonwealth forces took the island, and soon all but Anada and three of his men had either died or had surrendered. And so, in obedience to his orders, Onada ordered his men to take to the hills where they planned to continue their guerrilla campaign against the enemy. Six months later, in August of 45, the war ended, Japan surrendered, but Onada and his three men up in the mountains didn't know about it. They eventually found a leaflet dropped from a plane which declared the war was over, but they, misunder- they mistrusted the leaflet. They thought it was propaganda by the Allies. And so Anada remained in the jungle conducting guerrilla warfare for the next 30 years. And he killed in that time period over 30 people. Over those decades, one of the men with Anada surrendered to the authorities and the remaining two were killed in shootouts with the police. Finally, in 1974, Anada was found in his jungle hideout. But Anada would not believe the war was over, and he would not cease his guerrilla activities until he had a written order from his World War II commanding officer stating that he had been relieved of duty, a man who had been working in a bookstore for the past 30 years. Now, Onada had murdered people in peacetime. So the question was, should he be charged for his crimes, crimes that he committed in genuine ignorance? Well, the circumstances were taken into consideration, and it was decided that Anada was not working with enough information to know that what he was doing was wrong. And so Anada received a pardon from President Ferdinand Marcos. It's a very interesting story, to be sure, but what does it have to do with the price of tea in China? Romans 10.9. You're going to want your Bibles open today. Romans 10.9. Paul says, if, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which means Jews and Gentiles alike must be saved through faith in Jesus or not at all. 
Sinners must believe the truth that Jesus died according to Scripture. He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. He was exalted to the Father's right hand. He reigns as Lord and bestows salvation on those who place their faith in him. But of course, to believe the gospel then, certain preconditions must be met. And the Apostle Paul argues in Romans chapter 1, the general revelation of God The general revelation of God's eternal power and divine nature seen in creation isn't sufficient to save anyone. Preachers must be sent. Preachers must preach the gospel. And people must hear the preaching. Only then can sinners call upon the Lord for salvation. And so one of the big, big questions that Paul asks in Romans chapter 10 is this. Was calling on the name of the Lord for salvation a realistic possibility for first century Jews? Had the preconditions been met? Were, in fact, preachers sent to Israel? Did those preachers preach the gospel to them, and did they hear the preaching? Or were first century Jews, at least by the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans, like Haru Anada? living in ignorance of what God had accomplished on Calvary's hill 25 years before, and so without blame for their disbelief. And it's essential. Paul addresses this matter because just as today, most Jews at the time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah or that right standing with God was found through faith in him alone. But was that due to a lack of faithful preaching? Had there been a missions deficit? Look at chapter 10, verse 18. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Brothers and sisters, God has been faithful the whole way through. This is where chapter 9 also gets linked in with this. Chapters 9, 10, 11, and Romans are all kind of a one piece. We're only looking at 10 and 11, though. But God has been faithful the whole way through. He had made covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs back in Genesis. And Israel, the children of Abraham, stood as the natural heirs to those promises. And at the proper time, God the Father sent God the Son to fulfill those promises. And he sovereignly ensured that the good news of what he had accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection for sin was preached to Israel. He ensured it. God raised up missionaries, apostles, and faithful Christians, men and women who preached the good news everywhere the Jews had a community. So any possible excuse Israel might have for her failure to respond to God's offer of righteousness in Jesus Christ has been removed. Did they not hear? Of course they heard. Think about it. Good grief. The whole Bible would be turned on its head if they didn't, if they hadn't heard. The fact is the majority of Israelites were just plain obstinate and disobedient. Israel deliberately rejected the preaching of the gospel and instead they sought to establish her own righteousness through the works of the law. And so Israel stands justly condemned before God, which is astonishing because she was the recipient of numerous and detailed prophecies about God's plans and purposes. Israel should have understood that the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ would result in her judgment. Her own scriptures make that clear. Look at 10.19. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? 
First, Moses says, I will make you, Israel, envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you, Israel, angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Who's God talking about there? Not a nation. No understanding. Did not seek or ask for me. Who is that? Any takers? Gentiles. But concerning Israel, verse 21, concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And yet, even in this rejection, our sovereign God is working out his sovereign salvation purposes. How so? Because Israel's repudiation of the blessings naturally belonging to her, naturally, has now caused those covenantal blessings to be diverted into another wider channel. Now the blessings of the gospel are flowing to the whole world. And this too was prophesied in Old Testament scripture. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? And that's just a natural question for Paul to make at this point. Israel has made the biggest, most sinful, rebellious decision a people can. They deliberately rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why not? What would not, should not, God in turn reject them? Shouldn't God say, all right, everybody at the pool, you had your shot. I've been more than patient all day long. I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This stubborn, deliberate refusal to obey me has been going on for centuries. Well, no more. I'm sick of it. I disown you, Israel. You reject my son, that's the last straw. I reject you. You are no longer my people. I am no longer your God. Wouldn't that just stand to reason? That kind of makes sense to me. The Apostle Paul gives an emphatic no. Look at verse 1 again. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So do you see, Paul is living proof that God has not totally abandoned the descendants of Abraham. We can't say God has cast away the Israelites if Israelites are still being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. They have not been cast aside. And Paul here is now talking about, uh, he is not talking about elect individual Jews whom God foreknew. That would be introducing something completely foreign to the context. He is speaking on the national covenantal level. God has not rejected the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. Well, how, how does Paul say that? How can Paul say that? Because there is a Jewish remnant of Christian believers chosen by grace. And that fact is evidence of God's gracious, present faithfulness to the nation. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has preserved for himself a faithful remnant. To put that another way, God is presently, he is presently fulfilling his covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, by saving some Israelites. God is presently fulfilling his covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs by saving some Israelites. And brothers and sisters, this is so important to understand. This isn't just abstract theology. This upholds God's integrity. 
and covenantal faithfulness across all salvation history. God's past covenantal promises to the nation of Israel do not contradict this surprising yet foreordained turn in the history of redemption. When God is saving only some Israelites through faith in Jesus the Messiah and many Gentiles, right? That's surprising, but it's foreordained. Truth be told, the situation Israel finds herself in presently, and I say presently, today, yes, but also 2,000 years ago, where there are almost no faithful Jews, isn't that unique in Israel's history. Look at chapter 11, verse 2b. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he appealed to God against Israel? This is 1 Kings 19. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what's God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 out of the whole nation who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul, Paul's pushing this Old Testament example deliberately into the spotlight. Right? And he's forcing all of us to ask a very important question. Because there were only 7,000 faithful Jews left who had not bowed the knee to Baal, did that make God unfaithful? Did that make God unjust because there was only 7,000? Was God untrue to his covenantal obligations because there were only 7,000 faithful Jews in all of Israel? Had God reneged on his promises to Israel, to the patriarchs, in the days of Elijah? What's the answer? No, you can say it with <laughs> loud and proud, guys. Of course, of course not. Who's to blame for this? The people are to blame. It's not God's fault. Almost the entire nation had defected from the covenant in, in the worship of Baal. 99.9% of the nation were indifferent to God. They had apostatized en masse. We're talking about entrenched, state-sponsored Baal worship. But even so, God, God was faithful. They weren't faithful, but God was faithful. He did not cast off the nation, his people. He didn't cast them off entirely. He preserved 7,000 as a testament to his grace. Look at verse 5 of chapter 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Ah, right, the connection's very clear. Verse 6, and if by grace, if by God's unmerited favor, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. But you see there how careful the apostle is being to maintain a balance throughout these chapters. We're going to argue this more as he speaks about Israel. He's saying, yes, beyond a doubt, God's word affirms a continuing role for Israel in salvation history. That must not be denied. God has not abandoned his people. He has not rejected his people. God has not written his people off. But Israel cannot claim this role as a matter of right. There is a faithful remnant chosen by God's electing grace. And God is entirely free to bestow his blessing on whomever he chooses. Because if those salvation blessings were actually dependent on works, or if people inherently deserved those blessings, or if it was only fair that sinners, be they Jews or Gentiles, receive salvation, grace would no longer be grace. So, 7,000 people, 7 million people, three, an innumerable host, zero, entire continents in gospel darkness for millennia, you and I, being saved from our sin, or you and I not being saved from our sin, in each case, God has the right to choose. 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But the very notion that there's a Jewish remnant who are receiving the blessings of God's sovereign election, that implies that many other Israelites are not, as is God's right. And it's to this group that Paul now draws particular attention in verses 7 to 10. I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through this, guys, because I've got to get to the end, and then there's time for Q&A. Okay? i just got to get through a big chunk here. What then, verse 7? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not attain. And what was it that Israel did not obtain, even though they earnestly sought it? Does anyone know? Righteousness. A right standing before God. Why didn't they obtain it? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works of the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ crucified. They did not submit to God's righteousness and instead sought to establish their own. But while Israel as a whole, what Israel as a whole didn't attain, Paul tells us in verse 7 that the elect did. Look at verse 7. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So there we have it. In God's dealings with corporate Israel, God has saved a remnant but he has hardened the majority of Israelites. But, and if I had symbols up here right now, I'd be crashing them like crazy because I may be making a glorious cacophony, but this hardening of Israel as a national group is temporary. God has a plan. He always has a plan. His plan is to set Israel aside in order to save more Gentiles and thus provoke Israel to jealousy and then in turn save more Israelites. What's that? Pastor John, come again. Israel rejects the gospel and so salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles. But then it bounces back to Israel again. Look at your handout. Just above point four, the very bottom, just above point four. One question remains. What about Israel's future? Is Israel's rejection final? Will the beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel Israel permanently be merely a remnant within Israel? So that's where he takes us now in verses 11 to 15. God is saving Gentiles to make Israel envious. Verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Has Israel fallen into irretrievable spiritual ruin? That's what he's asking. Can Israel, as a whole, still be saved, or is it just this elect remnant God will save in every generation from now until Judgment Day? Right? That's that's, that's what he's comparing. That's what he's asking. We need to understand that. Can Israel, as a whole, be saved, or is it just this elect remnant that God saves in every generation until Judgment Day? Did they stumble so far as as to stumble, as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. On the contrary, as John Stott puts it, Far from being uh, on a downward spiral, the spiral is upward. God's purpose in rejecting these disobedient Israelites has an upward trajectory. Israel's rejection of their Messiah is actually the first step in an unfolding process. Israel's sin 
is the starting point of a process that will lead back to salvation blessing for Israel. Look at 11b. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And here we see God's purpose, his sovereign purpose in including Gentiles in his salvation plan to provoke Israel to jealousy, to make Israel envious of our covenantal blessings. Let that sink in for a moment. That is profound. Have you ever thought of Israel's unbelief and your salvation in those kinds of terms? Because you should be. It's, it's right there in the text. It's, it's God's intention that you do. That's why he breathed out this text. Look at verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise my own people to envy and save some of them. And what is envy? It's simply the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And because we're all sinners, we're very well acquainted with that. We can think of a hundred sinful examples of envy. But not all envy is bad. Not all envy is sinful. If the thing desired in itself is a good thing, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, then to covet it and to envy those who have it is not a sin. It's good. It's proper. It's holy. And there is one thing in this life above all else that people should envy in others. That lost sinner should covet with all their hearts the salvation blessings of the new covenant secured in Jesus Christ. Envy those who have it. Covet that very blessing. Not to envy such a thing is attributable to profound spiritual darkness and sin. And Paul believes that Israel, as they see Gentiles, Gentiles enjoying the messianic blessings first promised to them, promised to the patriarchs, because after all, they are the natural heirs to those blessings. When Israel sees our reconciliation to God and to each other, our forgiveness, love, joy, and peace through the Holy Spirit, Israel will covet those blessings for herself, and she will repent and believe in Jesus in order to secure them. That's the flow of the argument. Thus, provoked to envy, Israel will be saved. Now, before we start thinking, what a glorious day in the future that will be. Speed the day, Lord Jesus. And then move on to the next verse. We need to stop and consider just how we fit into this sovereign plan. My fellow Gentile brothers and sisters, God means to make Jews jealous through our salvation. Now, the day and hour, the moment in the history of redemption, when that will happen, we don't know. Which means, therefore, it needs to be a constant component of our Christian life. We always need to be thinking, how can I advance the purpose of God? How can I make the Jewish people I'm friends with, work with, go to school with, my Jewish neighbors, the Jewish teachers here at Winchewski every Sunday, how can I make them jealous of the fact that it's the people of Jesus Christ who are inheriting the promises made to Father Abraham? And perhaps that's an entirely new way of thinking about your evangelism. 
I'm well aware this isn't the most politically correct counsel, but then biblical truth seldom is. But the whole spirit of our interaction with our Jewish friends should be like the father to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal. Come on into the party. You belong here. We need to explain to them, I, a Gentile, have inherited the promise of Israel in Christ Jesus. I, who was once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We should be able to open our, our Bibles and explain a passage like Romans 2, 28-29, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we have become true Jews. 2.28 of Romans, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And then we can explain Galatians 3.7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. All the covenants, all the promises made to us, and all who will one day trust the Messiah. In this we should revel, New City, but in order to revel in this truth and faithfully proclaim it, we first need to understand it, which is why I'm teaching this text, right? So, provoked to envy, Israel will be saved. Just a little bit more and we can stop for q and got to plow through. Now you can see at the top of your handout, this is step number three of God's sovereign plan. Step number one, Israel rejects the gospel. This is all part of the plan. Step number two, salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles. Step number three, the salvation blessings of the Gentiles serve to make Israel envious, which in turn leads to Israel's full inclusion, verse 12, and acceptance, verse 15. But that's still to come. Step number three is still in Israel's future. And Paul doesn't lay down a timeline for that. It may be 10 years from now. It may be 10,000. We don't know. But as we see in step number four, what this envious conversion does is trigger the, trigger the final resurrection. Step four. The greater riches bestowed upon the world through Israel's full inclusion and acceptance is life from the dead, Paul says. That is, the resurrection after Christ's return in glory, the climactic end of salvation history. Christian, how is that for incentive to be evangelizing faithfully the Jewish community? Man alive. You mean you think every Bible-believing church in the city would be on the street corners of Toronto's Jewish community daily handing out gospel tracts, if that's the case. Do you hear what Paul's saying? The greater riches bestowed upon the world through Israel's full inclusion and acceptance is the final resurrection and the climactic end of salvation history. And we come to this understanding by combining verses 12 and 15. Now, I'm going to conclude our lesson today with this section. We'll pick up the rest next week, Lord willing. But before we look at this last little bit, let me just qualify everything I'm about to say. Jesus is returning. Jesus will judge the living and the dead in righteousness. Satan will be utterly defeated. And there is eternal resurrection life to be gained and eternal hell to be shunned. And those are teachings all Christians must believe or we're not Christians in any biblical sense. 
But where there can be legitimate disagreement amongst brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ is the timing and the order of events surrounding those incontestable biblical facts. Those are all third-level matters, which is why when you read New City's Statement of Faith, our church's basic confession to which every member must, must subscribe without reservation, there is nothing, you'll notice, nothing about the Antichrist, the Millennium, the Final Tribulation, or the mass conversion of Jews on the last day. It's not there. You won't find it. I would argue all those things fit in there somewhere, and I personally have a pretty good idea of the order, too. <laughs> you might disagree with my order. That's okay. That's fine. Uh, the, the church statement of faith that you signed off on as a member only states that Jesus will return to judge the world. That's it. The details are left deliberately vague. That was on purpose. That's because there are third-level beliefs concerning the return of Jesus a Christian should be able to hold to and still attend a church where the leadership or other members of the church have different understandings on that. So, you may not agree with my understanding that the salvation of Israel in the last day will kick off the resurrection. That's okay. That's all right. On a church membership, fellowship level, as it concerns our love and our respect for one another, we need to be able to disagree with each other on these tertiary matters. Which isn't to say, by the way, eschatology, the study of last things, is unimportant, or even that all eschatological positions are created equal. Far from it. Eschatology is not all wishy-washy subjectivity, nor is it all an inscrutable mystery so that every person's best guess is as good or biblically faithful as the next person's. I'm not saying that. No, what Christians believe about the particulars, the details of the last days and the return of Christ must always, always be informed by biblical texts and not just one standalone text either, but rather the whole counsel of God as all the texts of Scripture fit together and cohere. So, with that under about, let's just start landing the plane here, okay? We're almost done. I've just said what this envious conversion of Israel does is it triggers the final resurrection. And I believe we come to this understanding by combining verses 12 and 15. Look at verse 12 first. You want your Bibles open and see this. But if Israel's transgression, that is, her rejection of Jesus and the righteousness of God offered through him alone. If Israel's transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, follow closely. Verse 12 tells us that through Israel's simple transgression, Gentiles have riches right now. The Apostle Paul says that twice in one verse. We have riches now. And of course, these riches are wrapped up with the promises of the new covenant, with salvation itself. But at the time of Israel's full inclusion, Paul says Gentiles will have greater riches. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring, he says. Now, that sounds very intriguing. <laughs> uh, what might those greater riches be? What greater riches, brothers and sisters, are we still anticipating? Again, riches wrapped up in the promises of the new covenant, the salvation itself. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection of God's grace in Christ brought reconciliation to the world... 
what will their acceptance of God's grace in Christ be? But life from the dead. See, that's the blessing. That's the greater riches. Life from the dead. Bestowed upon the world through Israel's reconciliation. Life from the dead. The resurrection, when Jesus returns in glory. The climactic end of salvation history. Just as Israel's rejection of the gospel triggers the stage of salvation history in which we are presently situated, a stage in which God is especially blessing Gentiles, so with will Israel's full inclusion and acceptance trigger the climactic end of history, which means Israel has not been discarded from any further role in the plan of God. She is absolutely vital. Vital. And so now, the biblical puzzle pieces start to fit together. As we read through the book of Acts, what was God's purpose in Jews rejecting the gospel in town after town after town? Now we know. Now we're equipped with a divine perspective on the matter. Israel rejects the gospel, and so salvation blessings flow to the Gentiles, but then it bounces back to Israel again. Because at some point in the future, be it 10 years from now or 10,000, though they only represent one-fifth of 1% of the entire human race, the living biological children of Abraham the natural heirs of God's promises to the patriarchs will be awakened by God's Holy Spirit to the realities of what he's accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin. Jews will look upon Gentiles, people like you and me, people who are not a nation, who formerly had no understanding, who were not seeking God, who are not God's people, but now are called children of the living God, They will see our reconciliation with Yahweh through his crucified son, Jesus the Messiah, and be driven to godly jealousy in holy envy of our covenantal blessings, blessings they deliberately forsook these 2,000 years. They will repent and believe in Jesus the Christ. And that, in turn, will trigger the final resurrection which we know occurs when Jesus returns in glory. That's as far as I'm going to take this today. This is part one of uh, the pattern of God saving his people, Jews and Gentiles. We'll look at number or part two next week, finishing off the book of Romans, or the, the chapter of Romans 11, verses 16 to 36. So we're not done yet. So in the ensuing Q&A, <laughs> the flood of, what about this? It's probably, it might be answered in questions in that part of the text, okay? So, guys, that, that was a lot. You were very patient. That was just me talking straight there for about half an hour. So, open up for Q&A. Anything you'd like to do? Anything you'd like to get clarification on? Or just comment? Uh, I know you probably will some clarification. And at some point you mentioned that, uh, and I'm not sure if this was a question, or it was a, a statement. Did you say <laughs> that in every generation, there's a you know, remnant of Jews that is, is being saved by God. Is that what you meant? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. Okay. yeah, There are Christian Jews, and there have been for 2,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's Paul's army. He says, no, God has not passed off the covenant community, like the whole like, nation of Israel in that sense. Like, I'm, he's actually saving a remnant of Jews in every generation. Because if he had, then it'd be, there would be none. Right. Well, by definition, if for he sure. Had, yeah, but yeah, if yeah. he had, what was the language you used, like, passed off, yeah. then it would be like, at certain points, there would be none. Right. I guess there could be generations that would go by where there were no Christian Jews. Yeah. Yeah.
but that hasn't happened. So right. Yeah. Does that does that yeah, sit well you know, with you? Is that okay? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The question I had is so when you say that the return of Israel to favor with God will occur the climax of the history of the race are dead, and I saw the text, would it also be interpreted that as a nation that is in spiritual darkness is being brought to spiritual light? Instead of you know being like the conversion of the whole Jewish nation, the climatic event uh, before the you know the final resurrection. You're saying like life from the dead equals it's, it's spiritually, not necessarily saying that that because I, I see what you what you said because that greater blessing is when you know bringing people life from that. And I don't know if you're taking that test to say that the return of Israel to favor with God will occur the climax of Israel. Yeah, I'm linking it too, though, and there's more stuff to come, I guess. Okay. I don't know, but I'm also linking it with the greater riches that we already have riches, and then there's greater riches to come. What are the greater riches that we're waiting for as Gentiles? Because then he links that with with uh, life, 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 life from the life dead. From that, and yeah. that's my question is: it could be interpreted also, or it could be an interpretation. He's saying that a nation Jews that are in spiritual darkness, mm-hmm. they're being brought to life but spiritually as a nation. I, I think as we continue on with this, mm-hmm. and you'll see all Israel will be saved, that kind of stuff, I, I think it, it'll play against that. You have to give me next week to kind of finish that off. Oh, good, good. You know, and also, just, just to give you a heads up too, when I'm speaking with Israel here, and when Paul's speaking with Israel, I'm not speaking about real estate in the Middle East, the, the, the current nation of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, I'm not talking about that. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about ethnic Jews. Ethnic, yeah. ethnic Jews. Actually, biological DNA descendants of Abraham, Steven Spielberg living in, you know, in California and whatever. But that final generation, I'm going to be arguing, particularly next week, um, that final generation of Jews, I'm going to argue that there's a massive revival. And it could be 10 years from now. It could be 10,000. I don't know. But actually, where they actually see Jesus is the Messiah. And through faith in him, Jews, all of Israel, believes. But we have, to, we have to really parse all of Israel, what that means. That there's nothing more debated <laughs> in the New Testament than what all Israel means. But that's, that's where I'm going to take it, okay? So, yeah. Quinn? Um, yeah, I guess maybe some clarification on what, what covenant are you talking about? So my understanding is the old covenant, like Abrahamic, Noahic, sorry, Abrahamic, Mosaic, mm-hmm. Davidic, those are all covenantal works that terminated with the new covenant. Are those covenants, you're talking about the new covenant. Those covenants are properly fulfilled in the new covenant and in Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. So those, those, those promises, those promises that are made to Abraham, are ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So then, what, what are the covenant promises that apply to the Jews here? It's not those covenant promises. No, they are though. That's okay. the very. That's the very thing I'm saying. But I thought that they were that those promises are now fulfilled. Right, but they're 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 not believed. Jews don't believe in the Messiah. Yeah. So, so the covenants are no longer in effect. Is it not really, I guess, yeah, so the is it, to the Jews? Is that continuing? Yeah, so are the covenants in effect or not? Are they still... Those, like, those, those covenants are properly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew. Like, yeah, Matthew, so as I'm saying, like, yeah. how are the covenant promises still... Conditions of promises are still in effect? Are you saying that or, or not? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying they're fulfilled, they're fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Yes. Jews reject the new covenant. They yes. reject Jesus the Messiah. So therefore, those covenant promises... They don't actually see them as they're they're looking for other ways to fulfill those promises. They actually no, it's properly done in the gospel in Jesus Christ, and so therefore that fulfillment will happen 
when they truly turn to believe in Jesus the Messiah. And yeah, those are the new covenant promises. Right. Yeah. Okay. But the promise in the, the, the promise to As they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so this is—I mean, this is the this is the crux of everything. Where it's actually finding that those lines of continuity, discontinuity, covenantal agreement with how you how you relate the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all that kind of stuff with the new covenant. So there's that. There's got to be continuity, discontinuity, but it's finding its fulfillment in the law of Christ. And actually, that is rejected by Jews. They say Jesus is not the Messiah. And so therefore, those, any kind of covenantal promise, you see, you see all kinds of temporal covenantal promise being fulfilled in the Old Covenant. He's like, okay, here's, here's land here, you're going to get this land, you're going to be in Canaan, although that rest is never fully found, is it? You know, there's still, rest has not been given, even in Proverbs it's still being talked about. I will grant you rest in that future day, Hebrews 3 and 4. So if I'm following you, Quinn, it's, it's that those covenantal promises can't be truly embraced and truly understood until Jesus Christ is recognized as being the Messiah and the fulfiller of those covenants. If I'm not, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah, well, that's okay though. Okay. Is it, can I ask then, so is it, so the promise to the Jews under the Old Covenant is still a promise to them, however, the means of salvation is now, because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is through the Gospel, but the promise still stands to the Jews, but it's through the Gospel that they could be saved. That is what I'm saying. That, that's yeah. like, I'm talking about the continuity and discontinuity. Like, it's no longer... Oh, I, know, I know Quinn knows that, so I'm not, it might be something I'm missing. Okay. Yeah. But it's helpful for me. Yeah. Like, the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise to the Jews is fulfilled, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now it's through Jesus Christ, not the sacrificial system. Sure, yeah, definitely. Like yeah. I think on this side of the room. <laughs> Any underhand slow pitch? Right? <laughs> Again, we'll have a. I mean, you're, the next the next part here though is actually the olive tree, right? That's where he goes into next, where you actually have um, this pattern of God saving of His plan for Jews and Gentiles, where there's this natural tree, these covenantal promises made to the patriarchs, and they've been taken out. They've been rejected. And actually now, against nature, these Gentile branches that have been grafted in to this olive tree, where it's actually our very found, our, the very foundation of our salvation, blessings, and promises are actually found in the promises made to the patriarchs. That's where it, all, that's where it starts. And Gentiles don't recognize that. They don't see that. You know, we're just we're just, just new thing that happened 2,000 years ago. And you're seeing in, in the church in Rome, there's a, a lot of prejudice against Jews in that sense. It's almost like and you're really seeing it's an us-them kind of mentality because the salvation history isn't understood. Those lines of continuity is continuity. So he's, he actually talks about the covenants, the promises made to the patriarchs. And here you are as Christians, as Gentiles, grafted into those promises. Yeah, sure, God took out Jews who were unfaithful. They didn't believe in the Messiah, but he can very easily put them back in much easier than it is for you Gentiles who are alien, an alien branch being grafted in. That's where the argument's going to go, which, which might get to a little bit to what you're saying too, I guess, Quinn. Okay, but that's, that's next. So next week, Lord willing, it all comes together. Okay? And again, guys, you don't have to believe this, right? This is part of one of those tertiary issues, but hopefully it's like a snowball rolling down a hill and you'll pack on more and more snow. Uh, but I would say, have a, have a clear understanding of what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. That's a very important chunk of scripture. All right, we'll leave it at that.